It's, it's absolutely astonishing that all of a sudden there's life where there wasn't life before, seemingly. And on the other end, it's, you know, there was life and then there is no more life. This is the When You Die podcast. If it has to do with death and dying, we're talking about it. Welcome to the When You Die podcast. I'm Kelly Edwards, and today I'm speaking with Deborah Luscombe in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Deborah is one of the facilitators of the Halifax Death Cafe and leads Death Matters workshops in the area. She acts as an end-of-life concierge, assisting during the transition and post-mortem experience. Deborah has a passion for bringing people together around difficult conversations like death and dying. Thanks for speaking with me today. My pleasure, Kelly. This is a conversation. I know that that's something that When You Die is looking at. Death Matters is looking at other death positive movements. And you haven't always been involved in a death positive movement. No, and I can't get used to calling it the death positive movement. It's just a little too trendy for me, but I can live with it. How do you see it? How would you define it? I'm not sure that I would, but um, I understand how it got that label. Mm-hmm. I came to it because I saw felt, heard from friends, family around North America. It was difficult to talk about death, to find out information about dying. And then label about five or 10 years later, I don't know how long of death positive movement arose. And I suppose, you know, we can call it a movement. (laughs) It seems like logical behavior for folks of my generation who have made a habit of, um, upsetting the apple cart and it needs to be upset yeah well i think so i mean we're you know i'm a boomer that's another wonderful label <laughs> born in 1949 you know we we brought sex out of the closet in the 60s we brought childbirth home we revamped education and now we're all dying and i mean it makes perfect sense that we would get to this stage and go wait a minute there's something wrong with this picture when you talk about birth, you, you've had experience in childbirth and midwifery. I have. I mean, I birthed three strapping boys who are now even more strapping and have children of their own with midwives. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'll go back a little bit. When I first got pregnant, it was a surprise. I was one of the millions of women who had a Dalcon shield for contraception, which left millions of uh, at least American women uh, sterile because of the damage it did to the fallopian tubes. I had uh, exploratory surgery to see if anything could be done and something was done and I unexpectedly got pregnant. And then when I went to see my uh, gynecologist turned obstetrician, when I discovered I was pregnant, I immediately knew that that was not the road that I wanted to go. And I, this was in Colorado in 1981. And I found a midwife and then it became apparent to me that um, it was important that other women knew, families knew that they didn't have to birth in the hospital and have a cesarean section and all the other interventions that were common. So I got more and more involved in childbirth and became a midwife in Nova Scotia where I live now. There's a correlation or there's a, uh, a similarity between birth and death. 
That oh my goodness, yes. We don't seem to want to look at that. We all want to talk about birth, but nobody wants to talk about death. So what are the similarities that you found? There's a completely uh, non-conceptual, maybe perhaps even magical transition that occurs in both directions. In one case, you end up with this unexplainable being in your arms. And we celebrate that. It's, it's absolutely astonishing that all of a sudden there's life where there wasn't life before, seemingly. And on the other end, it's, you know, there was life and then there is no more life. And I think we are beginning to celebrate that as well. It's another trend, unexplainable, mysterious transition. But there's also, I mean, the practical parts like labor. Birth is an effort. Uh, which burns calories. <laughs> I remember. Yes. I, and I don't remember dying. Uh, I don't know if I have before. I, I don't have a particular feeling about reincarnation or rebirth. It makes sense to me. As I watch people die, it looks like really hard work. So there is a labor in dying as well. I think so. And I think there's especially, I do see the labor with the family members, people helping. Mm -hmm. and a, a particularly emotional being able to make that transition that includes loss you know that that is so mysterious we talk about you have this uh, the title of uh, concierge end of life concierge yeah i experimented with that now i've shifted it to something more practical i i came up with the word the word seemed to fit but it's, I don't think it says enough uh, about what I do. It, but it, for me, it worked at the time because I, I help people from when they begin, when they want to begin, like for the, de the Death Cafe, for instance, which I introduced here in Halifax a little more than four years ago, is a way for people to begin to talk about death because there aren't very many venues where that's even acceptable. Yet, although that's changing rapidly, especially mm -hmm. online. And then I walk people through their document production. And I, often I don't do this alone. I have a wonderful partner, Don Carson. We work together. So we do a workshop that walks people through getting their personal directives, delegates, documented, their funeral directives, all of those things. And it's, very, it's a very active process and often a group process, which is uh, rich and lively. I help people die. I help families prepare with a loved one for dying. I help families take care of a body after death. Um, I guide and coordinate funerals and cremations and burials and, uh, and do grief counseling. So that's a that's a big list, and and I don't know if people realize that all of these factors are important. Do you think when we talk about that we haven't had this conversation in our mainstream now for a while, do you see consequences of that? Have you have you witnessed the consequence of not talking about death or being prepared? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, they're they're far reaching. One of the things that happens when you when you haven't given it any thought and you haven't put any wishes 
you examined your values, put your wishes, documented your wishes, and had conversations with your loved ones, is that people argue about what needs to be done. You know, no, I'm sure he said he wanted that, which causes strife with families during and after death. It tears families apart, and it also forces families to be making decisions that they, when they need to be grieving and loving. Not necessarily in that order, but they come together. Mm-hmm. So I really encourage folks to talk about it now. Get it out on the table. Get it in writing. It, it's such a gift to your loved ones to have these conversations and get these decisions in writing. Now it's an incredible gift. Everybody relaxes. Mm. What do you think that, that the reasoning is behind this, that no one wants to talk about it, that it has, I mean, it's been a, a taboo now for a while. And uh, there's that expression that says talking about birth control isn't going to get you pregnant. So talking about death isn't right. going to kill you. Right. Right. So, so why is it that we're afraid of it? That's a really good question. And I think lots of people are tackling this issue and we probably hear a lot of similar reasons. Well, there's a number of factors, but one is when embalming fluids started to be used in the Civil War in the U.S., it was very convenient to preserve body. The use became more universal. Then the rise of the funeral industry kind of came along with that because somebody had to, you know, do the whole embalming procedure, which is kind of messy. And we forgot. We, we for, just like we forgot how to have babies... We forgot, you know, we don't lay grandma out on the dining room table anymore and have wakes at home. We're not, we don't touch dead bodies. We don't sit with them. We don't prepare them. We, and we got, somehow we got scared of them. And, and the funeral industry has helped in that regard. There's a, there's a myth that it's dangerous to handle a dead body. And in very rare instances, is that the case? I mean, if there's a highly communicable disease, but I've never had that experience, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean it won't happen. But in that case, I won't handle the body and it will be cremated, not put in the ground. But what I do see now with the people I'm working with, which is more community death caring home funerals, um, is the transformation of the grief process because it begins during the dying because there's been lots of conversation ahead of time, people are gathered around, they, they see the dying, and the, and the deceased does not get whisked away, the deceased stays with the family for three or four days, um, they do the preparation, you know, bathing and dressing of the body themselves, often, often they're nervous about it, and they ask me to just be there and tell them what to do, so, you know, I have my little kit with basins and washcloths and rubber gloves and shampoo and razors and all kinds of stuff, even a little makeup. Um, the, the process of recognizing that death has occurred and this body is an empty shell, that r- realization occurs often with families, loved ones who choose to do the work themselves with their deceased it's astonishing to watch it's quite um rich and full of love 
And it seems very beneficial to me. This always brings me to the word ritual. And I think there's different definitions of ritual. And, you know, how would you define that? I mean, and how important is that for end of life care? Ritual? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Ritual is important all the time. Um, we don't recognize it for the most part. I mean, getting up and brushing your teeth is a ritual. Right. I suppose it could depend on how you brush your teeth. If you're actually present as you brush your teeth, then I believe it has some quality of ritual and intention, taking care, mm-hmm. um, recognizing the sacredness of your mouth, perhaps. Right. Your health. We use ritual unknowingly all the time, but using it even more consciously at the time of death. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, a lot of chanting and candles and incense and all that kind of stuff. It can be, in terms of death, it can be just being present, maybe singing your loved one's favorite song as they die, taking care of their body after death. All of those things serve to keep one more present to the reality of what's occurring, I I believe, and honoring it as a, I hesitate to use the word sacred because I think it's overused, but as a, it's a precious, a precious opportunity. Mm-hmm. And how has this affected your life in dealing with death? How has it affected my life? Oh, maybe I'm a little more tenderized. I don't know. I'm certainly busier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and part part of the part of that is that this movement, the death positive movement, is working uh, with great energy to shift a paradigm, and it's very frustrating. I find it's very frustrating because people don't want to talk about it. Right? <laughs> so it's it's. I always think of. Uh, I think of you going to a, a, a party and all, you know, when that word that, when that conversation happens, when people go, so what do you do? You know, right. What's that reaction like? Well, I don't really go to very, very many parties, but um, <laughs> I don't think pe- people who, I, I don't go to parties with strangers. Generally, there are people I know and people don't talk to me unless, I mean, People know that if they talk to me, they it's risky. They might have to, they, I might bring up the, you know, have you done your documents yet? But actually when people say, what do you do to me? Mm-hmm. I say, about what? <laughs> I always think it's this thing where people, I know if I talk about it, I have a, I have people who say, oh yes, you're right. It's so important. Or I have people who say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. It's depressing. Because they're pushing out away again. I've been involved with the local uh, hospice Halifax and its development just a little bit training as a volunteer. And um, I was at a meeting a few months ago with the medical director and where we were invited to submit questions ahead of time. And I, my question was, how long will families get to spend with their loved ones after death in the hospice setting? And the answer was, in, in this, this was in person, in this big group uh, of mostly women, 
was, well, as long as they need to, but at some point they will have to call the funeral director. And I said, why? She said, well, to move the body. And I said, well, you don't actually need a funeral director to move a body. You could do it yourself. And, and all the rest of the women in the room spontaneously all together went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> These are people who volunteer for hospice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's out there, <laughs> the yuck factor. Yeah, because we've been conditioned to believe it's yuck. We just are. We just are out of practice. Mm -hmm. That's all. But that will change. It is changing. Well, it's just. I find it so interesting that we are. Uh, we're evolving. I mean, it's. 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 There is that initial fear, I think. Mm -hmm. Don't you find, mm -hmm. I mean, fear is a big factor for whatever reason. I found it around childbirth, too. Is that, yeah, well, of course. It's the unknown, yeah. right? Yeah. When we talk about this, I mean, because you uh, refer to this as the inevitable adventure. <laughs> How do we enable ourselves to look at it as an adventure and not as something to be feared? Oh, my. That's a big question. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think it has a whole lot to do. Well, I mean, there's so many factors in, in what, what creates one particular person's state of mind, you know, what they come in with, how they're brought up, um, whether they're, from, you know, used to a half empty glass or a half full glass approach. Um, I r really attribute my curiosity and um, fascination with life and death to my um, Buddhist practice. Right. It's, it's really shifted my view, my perspective about everything. Right. And and do you find that when when you when you come to work with a family with a person who is dying, is there uh, are there steps that you know that are similar that people go through to finally get to the acceptance? Is that as varied as the individual, or is there something that's common? I'm not sure that I can answer that question. What is, what is common about the people I've worked with? Certainly not wanting to face death, not wanting to lose their loved one. That's very common. That's mm -hmm. completely common. Nobody seems to be happy about the loss of someone they love. Yeah. And, the, and the person who is dying is also dealing with their loss. Their loss of right. life. their loss of their life, their loss of their loved ones, mm -hmm. and everything you know, all of their possessions, mm -hmm. um, status, wealth, fame, everything passes. I I haven't seen um, because again I, I'm I'm my situation is particular because I mostly work with people who have been practicing Buddhist for a long time. And the people I've worked with seem to face death with 
for the most part, equanimity. Mm. And um, I have, I've certainly seen family members not able to be in the room when somebody's dying, you know, there's just too much grief or not being, not wanting to be around when the preparation of the body happens. They would rather not do it more often than not. It's friends who do that piece. Mm -hmm. Family members are exhausted and are consoling each other and resting. Um, but I don't, I'm sure there are universal truths about that, but I'm not sure I know what they are. Let me ask you this. What happens in the days leading up to death, both from the person, this perspective of the person who is dying, the body that is dying, and the, and the people who are losing that person? How does that look in the last few days? Oh, my goodness. It's always different. Mm. Sometimes there is there's not the luxury of the last few days um or sometimes there's total denial in the last few days so there's no recognition or willingness to admit that the end is coming but sometimes there's actual um preparation people are actually prepared they're willing to believe they're willing to, or belief isn't the right word, they're willing to acknowledge that this life is coming to an end and um, people gather together and talk about what comes next, perhaps talk about and also tell stories about the person who's dying. It really depends. It's driven very much by the location, if the person's dying at home or in an institution and their wishes what, how they want the environment, what they want the environment to look like. Sometimes family members are scrambling around trying to avoid the inevitable. Um, there is so much variety in how we face our own mortality and the death of our loved ones. Probably again, having something to do with the fact that we're out of practice, mm. you know, as a culture. We haven't seen it. We did not see our parents do it with their parents. Right. Everything, everything disappeared quickly. People, the dead people didn't die at home and they were whisked out of their hospital bed to the morgue and to the funeral home and, no, and we weren't involved. And that's all shifting. So it's really up in the air what these days look like. We're, we're reinventing something that we used to know. We're remembering something that we used to know as a culture and, a, and, and as human beings. Is it some sort of that we're tapped into this ancestral memory? One would like to think that. <laughs> <laughs> that brings me to, to uh, humor. How important is a sense of humor? A sense of humor is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people would think it was inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's critical that, that we have this levity. And, and why is that? I think it's critical that we have it all the time. That we not take ourselves so damn seriously. And, and be willing to poke fun at ourselves and each other. And 
and recognize that, I mean, this is such a strange um, prank that, you know, we have this short life on this amazing planet that we're destroying. Mm-hmm. That's, another, that's another topic. Yeah, um, you know, it's, I mean, whose idea was this? How, how else I would, if I didn't find it humorous, I would get really angry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, another thing that's so important and particularly in the work that you do is, is listening. Listening is an, another absolute necessity. And is it something else that we need to teach ourselves to do again? All the time. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's connected to not taking ourselves so seriously. Being willing to not be in the forefront, not be the center of attention, she says, as she's on camera. <laughs> to actually notice what's in front of us. We have all these phenomenal senses, eyes and ears and nose and touch and tongue, you know, mind. And we could actually pay attention to our world and everything and everyone who's in it and with awe and curiosity. And listening is a piece of that. And listening to the wishes listening to the feelings. These are all the, the, the factors that are important in this process. We have a habit. Well, I have a habit anyway. I think we do this as human beings of filtering what we hear and see through a lens that we've created, we've built up over this lifetime of experience. And it's very hugely challenging to suspend that lens during the experience of any moment you know, to, to actually appreciate what's right in front of us, to see things as they are, is not easy. It takes a lot of practice. And again, I come back to my decades of meditation practice uh, as a, really being a foundation for being present. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we have to do more of. Well, I certainly do. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that everyone be a Buddhist at all, but, um, but it's an awareness, a, a, a willingness to be completely present without our, um, colored glasses on. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult. I, I have a, a, an identity that I've worked hard to create. And so suspending that is next to impossible. And do you see that in uh, when someone is at the end of their life? Is it difficult for people to give up that identity? Is that what we're doing? I, I suspect that that is a big part of what we're doing, mm-hmm. is relaxing into complete presence and whatever happens next. Um, and, and whatever we take with us, I imagine, and I, as I understand it from Buddhist teachings and other traditions, can be an obstacle. Mm-hmm. I think also one of the, the important things that uh, we need to look at is language and the language around death and dying. And I saw something recently that said, instead of saying at the end of life, we need to say through the end of life. How do you feel about that? Hmm. 
and 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 is it important? Is is language an important factor in in our end of life care? I'm sure language is an important factor all the time. Mm-hmm. Intention is so much more important than the particular words that we use, and we are constantly misunderstanding each other because what I say and what you hear are two different things. No one will ever understand me completely, as I will never understand anyone else completely. And quibbling about particular words can get a little bit too carried away. I think we go overboard in that department. I'm not saying that it's not important. But challenging people for their use of, you know, at the end of life and through the end of life, all a matter of perspective. For some people, life ends and something else happens. For some people, it's a transition, you know, there's the through piece, but I think we can get too stuck there with our use of words. And there are other more important things that we need to look at. Probably. Mm. (laughs) Like sense of humor. (laughs) Very much. So Deborah, if you had to impart one thing that you think is important that everyone needs to know about death and dying. What, what would that be? Oh, my. That's a tall order. Mm-hmm. I would encourage the recognition of the little deaths, the, the losses that we experience daily. Aging, for instance, that's a big one. When one has a baby, I remember this. When one becomes a mother the life that you leave behind is gone. And I grieved for that, that pre-motherhood life, but it's gone and it never comes back. Yes. But those kinds of things happen all the time in little ways. Every autumn, when I put my garden to bed, everything has gone. It has come and gone. And it's sad to me every fall when I put my garden to bed. Mm Of course, I get to harvest my garlic at the same time. That's pretty. Well, actually, that's in the summer. I get to plant more garlic. We experience those moments all the time. I experience it. I'm sitting next to my sewing machine, which is where I make my living. This is very trivial, but a a spool of thread runs out in the middle of a seam. I'm out of thread, which is very irritating. That's a transition. There's a little tiny loss, death that occurs there in that moment. When that thread is gone and I have to stop what I was doing, there's a transition and rethread the machine. They happen all the time and they're really important moments. Notice them. We have little griefs every single day that we, we don't acknowledge because I think the word grief, we seem to think it needs to be some big, vast, mm. oppressive feeling, but it happens every single day. Like you said, you you're you're, it's sort of a metaphor for your rethreading your life or your next adventure uh, after life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, loss, loss is constant. Death is constant. Rebirth is constant, moment to moment. And the sooner we get used to that idea, I suspect the big one at the end, what we perceive now as the big one at the end, may become a little bit easier. This-
This conversation is brought to you by the When You Die Project. From existential afterlife questions to palliative care and the nuts and bolts of green burial, if it has to do with death, we're talking about it. WhenYouDie.org.